Hey there, it's Melissa Brunetti, and welcome to the Mind Your Own Karma podcast. Hey there, Karma crew. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Mind Your Own Karma, the Adoption Chronicles, where we are educating the world one story at a time. And today I have Greg Gentry on the show. You may know him if you are out and about in the Facebook adoptee groups. I am honored to have him on the show today. And let me tell you a little bit more about Greg. He was born in California in 1969 and placed in a closed adoption as an infant after spending six weeks in foster care, which was a common practice with Baby Scoop era adoptions. Growing up, he sensed a certain ill fit with his family and found out about his adoption when he was 10 years old. In 2006, at age 37, he finally discovered and made contact with his biological maternal side and has experienced all the attendant ups and downs that so often accompany reunions. He was able to connect with his paternal family in late 2021 and is currently navigating the landscape and complexities of those newly emerging relationships. Since coming out of the fog in 2021, Greg has been an active member of the online and in-person adoptee communities. Here is Greg Gentry's story. So we're welcoming Greg Gentry to the show today. Hi, Greg. Hi, Melissa. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So let's just jump right in. Um, why don't you tell us what you know about your adoption story? Yeah, that's a good question. So I'll start out by saying growing up, I knew basically nothing about it and was never really talked to about it. So anything I found out was found out in pretty much around my mid-30s. I didn't have any any clue about where I might have come from. I didn't have any information. I didn't have any names and no discussion with my adoptive parents until I secured the services of a private investigator when I was, mm. yeah, I guess it was 36 or 37 at the time. And so I literally found out everything about my birth mother's side all at once, pretty much in an information, I call it a dump, but it wasn't a huge amount of information. But when you haven't seen anything at all up to that point, yeah. then it feels like a dump because it was an email that suddenly here's what we have found out. And it was information on where she lived. It was uh, mentioned that I had grandparents that were still living, which was a shock to me because mm. I, I was 37 at the time. I knew she was very young when I found that out. And it had really no information about my father other than his place of birth, which was Oklahoma. What year did you um, hire these detectives or investigator? 2006. Okay. Yeah. So, and I, I had wanted for about a year, I think, to look into it seriously. I'd considered it off and on a few times in, in adulthood, but I kept kind of talking myself out of it. Like you shouldn't really have to worry about that or you don't really want to know. And that was really more of, I think my parents' narratives than anything. <laughs> so since there were no discussions about it openly growing up and the few times I did bring it up, I got kind of an emotional response, mm. like a tearful response from my mom. Mm -hmm. So I kind of came to feel like this isn't something we talk about. So I, I didn't, and I talked myself out of it and even would tell people I'm not interested in finding out, but I was interested. Yeah. I just didn't seriously engage in doing it until I was, yeah, mid to late thirties. So you were on Unraveling Adoption with Beth Syverson recently, and you had mentioned that in the baby scoop era, many adoptees were put in foster care 
to see if they had any problems before placement. I had never heard that before. And I know I was placed in foster care yeah, and I had health issues, but they never revealed that to my adoptive parents. So can you talk about that a little bit? I didn't know that was like a thing. I found that out somewhere online and I, I heard it in a couple different places and it basically was it's like a test run kind of how mm. the the baby the infant before they go to where they'll be placed what is it going to be like what might they manifest in the first several weeks and so they were placed <laughs> say they like it's someone else but yeah <laughs> placed into foster care for a number of weeks or days and for me I originally had thought it was about three months it turned out to be about six weeks my adoptive mom finally told me I have no details about what it was like or who they were I'm not even sure they know really I think it was just yeah. this kind of way station or stopping point but when I read more recently that the intention of it was to see what was going to manifest in the child that was being relinquished or had been relinquished at that point, then it was kind of sobering because it made you think, well, what, what exactly did they think they were going to observe? Right. So kind of like, I don't want to say lab rats, but I mean, yeah, that's kind of what it sounds like. Are you going to be okay enough to go through with this? Or Yeah. And then what if they... What if I wasn't? Exactly. What if you weren't? Well, then what? Where would, yeah, where would you go then at that point? Do you go to some, I, I don't know. Uh, the more distressing thing I found out about that was the tendency was for foster parents in that era not to really be encouraged to bond at all with the child. Mm. So I had assumed, okay, six weeks, that's awful. Maybe it's better than three months, but at least I was being held in all these things. And then I found out that they were not encouraged for a a whole lot of contact and a lot of wow because they were being told not to bond also because the child was going somewhere else. So now I have absolutely no idea what the standard of care might that have been. That would be an interesting interview to interview a foster parent back in the late 60s. Really would be. Just to see what they were told, you know. Really would be. Because I know I was in foster care for 10 weeks. But I was told that it was because my mom was trying to figure out a way to keep me. And so she kept putting off signing, which she didn't sign until like a week or two before I was placed. So that was partially true. But yeah, yeah. Interesting. I had not heard that before. Yeah. And I'm trying to remember where exactly I saw it. Go back and look, have to look at see the couple places where I might have seen yeah. that and then let you know for sure. It would be interesting to hear somebody from that era who was a foster parent. What was it like? What were you encouraged to do or not to do? Yeah. So how was your experience growing up? I mean, were you ever told you were adopted? Do you remember being told? Did you have any feelings around finding out? I guess they had told me. I've never found out when they told me, but I found out consciously when I was 10, when I asked and then was told, yeah, we did have this discussion with you when you were younger. And I never found out when younger or what my response was at the time, but clearly it I either couldn't process it or it didn't, mm -hmm. or it was traumatizing itself at the time, or I had no idea what it meant because right. it seems to have bumped around in my head for a number of years until, and a friend helped me realize this, there was a reason you, it precipitated in you suddenly, you saw something on TV and it triggered you. And you said, was I adopted too? And that was what I asked my mom. She said, mm. yes. And my friend said, the only reason that was in your head in the first place it's probably some part of you remember this prior conversation where maybe they did tell you about that and you just weren't at a place where you could understand what that meant or why that was significant. And suddenly I, I was confronted with it on this episode of My Three Sons. I remember the anxiety around it. Oh, wow. And suddenly I just yelled out, mom, was I adopted? 
I think I asked it as I wasn't adopted, was I? One of these negative type questions, you know? Yeah. Oh, wow. The answer was yes. He must have felt different or an inkling that something was. Yeah. And and I've, I've thought a lot about that too. What was it like you asked? And so, even though I didn't have this clear sense of it until I asked at age 10. So I, I, I say I found out at 10, maybe I was told earlier. Yeah. But that's when it became something conscious to me and it was earth shattering, but life growing up had always been, we always got along really well. And I never have felt anything but love and acceptance for my family. Uh, it doesn't mean I felt like I naturally was a fit though. And I didn't always know why they were very industrious people. They were always off cleaning the yard and doing all these physical things, <laughs> making stuff. And, and I was, I wasn't as into that. And I interpreted that as being lazy. And I think they interpreted that as being lazy or <laughs> and some people would say, Oh, you were just a kid. That's true. But my sister was also just a kid and she was a very hard worker. There was a difference in our personalities. I didn't know where it came from. I remember fantasizing that I had different siblings than the ones I grew up with, which is kind of weird. Before you even remember that you I were I think adopted. right around that time, yeah, maybe I was seven or eight, and I was starting to think about that. And certainly by the time I found out, I, I almost imagined what would it be like actually to be related to my siblings. So you had a sister, just a sister, or do you have more siblings and were they adopted? Or I have two older adoptive sisters who are my parents' biological daughters, and Neither one of them are obviously adopted. We didn't have any conversations about it. So you were the only one that was adopted yeah. in the family? Yeah, I was the only one. Was it because they wanted a boy or how did that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Pretty bluntly, it was because they wanted a boy. So how did you get along with your sisters growing up and now? Very well. In fact, overall, not even just overall, almost entirely, my life was one of being very agreeable and compliant and never in the way never talking back, never getting in fights. Even when they would fight the sisters with each other, I wouldn't fight. Um, nobody yelled. They would yell because they were, they were rivals, but I, I was very, uh, gentle and inward. And I feel like there were big manifestations of the, just the difference in temperament between Mm -hmm. all of us. But I, I felt growing up that I was exceptionally meek. I'll say. Even in school, and I did have friends. I had I had plenty of friends. I wasn't. I mean, I was painfully shy, but I still connected with people. Uh, and I've I've always, even in adulthood, been this kind of conciliatory and mild sort of person. And it was confusing to me why I would be so much that way growing up. When I was like in junior high, I remember being like, I wouldn't stand up for myself yeah. for anything. I'm sure yeah. I would probably let someone pound me into the dirt and not not even raise a hand. I didn't know why I would be that way. Yeah, I had super low self-esteem. I remember growing up and I was super quiet and just wanted to blend into the background and not be seen. Yeah, very much so. And definitely never made waves anywhere. Like I was never restricted or anything. I didn't have any rebellious stage. I kind of view that now as sort of unnatural, but I realized it was was symptomatic of of being a, a compliant adoptee. Yeah. That's what it was even though I didn't know where any of it came from at the time or why I would be that way. It was just the playing out of kind of a primal terror that I, that I carried, which was that I have to get along. I have to get along. I have to get along. What do I do to get along? 
And so I did. I got along flawlessly with everybody in my life. And I still mostly do with people even yeah. now. And some of that can be an agreeable thing in my personality. And some of it I'm, I'm aware of as being really soft and kind of like wish I had the ability to be more assertive sometimes. Yeah. It just doesn't come very naturally for me. Instead, what comes out is is being this way of, of being really agreeable with people. And yes, there was a lot of people pleasing mm-hmm. in it for sure, which I know is not not ideal, but it's not uncommon either. Yeah. It was this get along thing. And I had a hard time. I had a hard time forming my own opinions and thinking I knew what was going on. And so there was a lot of inward confusion on my part about how do I how do I arrive at what I think of things? Mm-hmm. And it took me most of my life to realize I can have a voice too. Yeah. Only in the past couple of years have I really been aware that that could be the case. Right. Looking back, do you see any habits or tendencies growing up and even into adulthood that you could most likely link back to being adopted? Staying out of the way for me, uh, which has stayed with me. And I called that somewhere else. I called that being a zero footprint adoptee. And I also gave the example of it happens even at like at a grocery store. I will steer clear anybody who even think they want to look right where I am, I'm out of the way. I will never be in the way of anybody in any place. I won't ever insert myself in front of somebody. How about in your relationships with close, you know? Yeah. I found that, let's say in, in my, what I call my vital relationships with my wife at the time and my kids, as I got older, I started to manifest these kind of reactions that I didn't know where they came from either. They were either from the result of being really depressed or not understanding where bursts of anger would come from, wanting to run away, mm-hmm. getting in the car and driving off. It was the flight response activated in me and I kept doing it. I didn't ever know why it was there. And so what happened was it put a lot of stress on my relationships because it comes across as as being reactive. Yeah. And it was, it was a reactive way to be. And I couldn't, I, every time I tried to address it, whether it was in a therapy session or doing self work, I didn't get very far with it because I was never really addressing what was going on. I was just kind of trying to, trying to make up for what I felt were deficiencies in, in how I was. So when you would feel those things, did you feel like you were justified in your feelings or were you feeling like, why am I feeling this or why is this happening? I Oh, I felt terrible. I still feel that because I can still do that. I still can run away sometimes. Yeah. And I feel a lot of shame over that because anyone who's been in an activated state knows what happens, what your nervous system feels like suddenly you're sort of compelled to go in a certain direction that you thought I didn't expect to be going this way again. Why am I doing this again? What did I just do? Yeah. Um, so that, that can be really harmful in relationships for sure. And the other part of it is it can lead to feeling like you have to keep elements of yourself to yourself because you're afraid people might try to remove things from you that, that you, that you really need to hold on to. So I, I had manifestations of that at times. Mm. And that's not the healthiest thing either, but I didn't realize where, where things came from. Yeah. I finally figured out, but I, I unfortunately figured out too late to, to save some of the, mm. the most important relationships in my life at that point. Yeah. I was call that collateral damage. Yeah. 
Uh, let's talk about reunions for a minute. I know yours has had its ups and downs. And um, so can you tell us how you found your biological family, how it went and where it's at now? Since 2006, I've been in reunion with my maternal side. And that, again, was the result of, of getting the information from the private investigator. I met my mother in person for the first time in 2007. We had talked for about a year before that. Oh, wow. And we had all of the trepidation, all of the approaching each other really cautiously. And then we went into it really strongly and we exchanged hundreds of emails, text messages, just, just this whole, we were, we were getting to know each other. And we also were insecure about it and thought, mm. okay, maybe, maybe when we finally meet, what is it going to be like? We had every reason to believe it was going to be really wonderful. And it, and it was when we connected in person and my family was there. My wife and my kids were there at the mm. time as well. They got to meet her, got to meet my aunt and my, my sister and my grandmother. So it was, it was a really nice time. And when you mention it going up and down, it really did. There were a few times it went really badly, really wrong and brought up a lot of distress in each of us. And a lot of behaviors toward each other that were toxic. There was no way to navigate it in terms of we weren't equipped for it. I guess what I'm, yeah, there wasn't any manual on how to do it. So it went up and down and in and out. And at times it got really bad. And at times it would sail along and be wonderful. And it went on like that back and forth for, for several years. And then finally, in 2021, it, it kind of broke down towards our time when we were moving to Florida from Massachusetts, and it hasn't really been restored with mm -hmm. her since then. But I've maintained that relationship with my sister, with my half-brother from, from her side, and also with her husband. So I stay in contact with them. I had one chance to meet my uncle in person on her side and one of my cousins, a couple of my cousins. And have not had any real contact with them since then, mm -hmm. which I felt this yearning for, like I really want to do that and to be more a part of their lives somehow if I can manage to do that. But the couple times that I've tried, I haven't, there's been kind of mild, polite interest, maybe, oh, that's you. Okay. But not a lot of, yeah. oh, I'd like to know you or let's talk. There hasn't been anything like that coming out of it. So what do you think went wrong with your mom? Like, was it unmet expectations or... It was definitely, it was partly that she had a fantasy idea of what a reunion would be like. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it was that way. And other times it felt not as well received by people in my family. And it made her very, very uncomfortable and insecure. So she would react, which made me react, which drove us apart. It would take a while mm -hmm. to restore that. I think she's always struggled with feeling worthy of being in my life. And this felt like the other people in my life maybe hadn't given her all the room she had, she had wanted. So the mm. expectation had kind of been that we would just sail off wonderfully and always be really close. Seamlessly. Yeah. yeah. I had that too. I, I had this fantasy in my mind. Oh, I'll move to Texas and I'll live in the house three doors down from then and we'll see each other hundreds of times. It'll be great. Yeah. And it was hard to disabuse myself of that. But I think it largely did have to do with expectation. I think it had to do with communication, mm -hmm. which I sometimes can struggle with Yeah, being a neurodiverse person, but also somebody who's insecure. I don't always have the clearest communication with people. And mm -hmm. even though I can talk to a room full of people, sometimes interpersonally, it's tough. 
And there were times that manifested too. And I think the whole thing overall just led to the, this collapse of the reunion, unfortunately, between us. So you met a brother recently? Yeah. So I... How did that go? Was that the first time you had met him? That was the first time meeting him. In terms of my father's side, because he was on my father's side, I hadn't connected with them until late 2021. And so the space, the number of years between the reunion with my birth mother and finally connecting with my late father's family was about 14 years. And it took that long because I had carried impressions from what I'd heard from her and this thought that maybe he didn't really want me. Now, he, he had passed away in 1988, so I never had any chance to really. Oh, wow. So how old was he when he passed? 33. Wow. Yeah. I had thought, well, he was young. When, when I found out, I couldn't find any details about it, just that he had died in San Diego in 1988, when I would have been 19. And I had thought, well, let me look around a little bit. I wasn't any good at searching. I don't know how to do it. I couldn't find anything, but it turned out that... While I was thinking, oh, I was probably his only child, he actually had had five more sons. Wow. And, and none of them knew about me. That was. The oh, thing. my gosh. Did <laughs> he know yes. about you? What was that? Did he know? Did you? Yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he knew. He was uh, 16 when I was born. Mm. Yeah, he remembered. And, and as I've talked to members in his family, I say that that sounds strange because they're members of my family. They right. would say things like. I remember your birth mother coming to our house mm. with her parents the day that that discussion took place. Oh, what wow. was going to happen with you? She was pregnant with you. I thought, boy, that's really weird and heavy to hear something like that. So, do you know what happened during that discussion? Did they reveal? Anything? I don't know. I I do know one thing, which is that on my mother's side, one of her brothers had wanted to adopt me to keep mm. me in the family, and. Either he was too young or something was determined to be unreasonable about that. Yeah. And it didn't happen. I don't know much about this deliberation that would have taken place, but I do know that it was obviously, the I think, the grandparents, my grandparents, who were the deciding factor there. Mm. On my mother's side, as far as I know, they're both still alive. On my father's side, they they both passed. One of them I had always thought was my grandfather was part of this decision on, on my father's side. It turns out he had actually passed away in 1968, the year before I was born. There was another man she was married yeah. to when I was relinquished. So he actually had something to do with the decision of, of where I went, which was weird to realize that because I had always thought it yeah. was my grandfather and it wasn't him. So what advice would you give somebody that's thinking about reuniting? I would always tell somebody who wants to do it that they should do it if, if that's what they really want to do. I'm not an, a naysayer about reunion. I don't counsel anybody to stay away from it. I will certainly let people know that it's complex, it's dynamic, and it's gut-wrenching. And if you thought it was hard enough growing up as an adoptee, wait till you put your natural family into it. And then yeah. the collision of all these elements is just, there's just no way to be fully prepared for what that'll be like. You just can't imagine it until you're actually in it and experiencing it. And then, of course, it's different for every single one of us. So I would say that I encourage people to go ahead with it because there, there may be other more than one reason they want to do it, right? Some people mm -hmm. do want to do this for medical data and things like this. I kind of talk myself about that a little bit. And I realized, no, I, I really do want to form relationships with people. 
that I think is where people tend to give more advice and say, don't have expectations, yeah. don't this and don't that. I'm not somebody that advises people not to have expectations because I'm not able to do that for myself to say, I just won't have expectations. Then mm. uh, I, I can't do that. I always have expectations. So I'm going to be honest about it. So I couldn't really counsel somebody else not to when I'm not able to do that. I would just say, though, to be aware that you'll need a lot of support from people who understand what this experience is like. So do what you can to be connected with people who've gone through it, which means you do have to talk to other adoptees if you've never done that. Mm-hmm. You won't be able to find out through reading a book what it's going to be like. I mean, you, you can learn yeah. what it was like for them, sure. But you, you'll need the support of people because there will be probably times it goes off the rails like it did for me. There'll be other times it's just soaring in the stratosphere and you'll think it's the most amazing thing ever mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. or anything in between. Or it may never get off the ground at all. And that's its own particular type of grief. That's, again, about these expectations. So hard not to have them. I just don't know how you can not have them. And there are doors slammed. There are so many things. But if you can find support from people, in-person support is great. There's a way to do it, to meet with people. If not, Mm -hmm. there are some great online resources here for people. But I think it's just important to talk to people that know what that experience is like. And who can yeah. console you when things might get really hard. Yeah. I think, you know, a couple of the key things is communication. Like you were saying, feeling like you can communicate with them. I felt like I couldn't, you know, really tell my birth mother, you know, how I was feeling. Yeah. In fact, she would kind of go behind my back and talk to my husband at the time and be like, why is she doing this? Why is she, you know? And I was like, oh. I feel like I'm being normal. Like, this is me. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yes. Sorry. It was very uncomfortable, but, um, but I felt like I couldn't be truthful with her and, and say some things as well. I held things back. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing I had didn't think about was after reunion, then what, what's going to happen? That's the other thing is kind of in your mind, kind of thinking like, is this person going to be in your life if possible? All those type of things. Like, I didn't even know. I, I was like, okay, what are my kids going to call her? They have a grandma and grandpa, you know, what are we going to, how are you going to fit? It's very confusing. That's really hard. Yeah. Because we tend to think of families in these, in these ways. Suddenly you have more family, but they're a different kind of family. They aren't just like, they aren't indispensable or they aren't dispensable. Mm -hmm. You don't want to get rid of them. How do they fit? Well, my siblings, that was easy. Like you can have (laughs) 5,000 brothers and sisters, you know, that's easy, but. As far as the parent role, you know, it was just kind of like, whoa, I didn't think about this at all. <laughs> it's like hitting the brick wall. I found that was when I told my adoptive parents about finding her, boy, that was uncomfortable. And I became the person in the room that had to, to reassure them that I loved them. And, you know, you know how this story goes. I was, yeah, I remember that very clearly because my birth mother wanted me to have that conversation with them in order to continue oh, wow. our relationship. So I, I really kind of had no choice but to tell them, and I did, and it was very painful for them. Wow. But it put me in a position, I don't think adoptees should fairly have to be in that position. Yeah. It's okay. I still love you. That's hard. But, but yeah. Because we know, we know what this role of this burden and gratitude that we have, we're not supposed to be there to to assure or reassure our parents of their importance. That's that's kind of what put us in this situation to begin with yeah. for a lot of us anyway, was we were building a family for somebody who was 
in a state of loss because they couldn't do it. And now they're, they're going to feel all this insecurity. And suddenly you have to step into the role of telling them it's okay. Yeah. I still think of you this way. And it's, it's really not fair for us to be in that situation. So your birth mother basically forced you to tell your adoptive parents. Otherwise she wasn't going to have a relationship with you. Is that? Yes, that's true. <laughs> wow. Wow. No, she didn't do it unkindly. But when I think about it now, if she didn't ask me whether I wanted to do it or not, it was just, you really need to do this. Otherwise, I don't feel comfortable continuing this. I'm thinking now I, I would have probably had a different conversation with her about it. Yeah. But I also, it's this uh, incognito thing adoptees do. Like, I don't want anybody in my family to know I'm doing this. Yeah. Which I hate, but I did it. I know. So... <laughs> I wish nobody did, but I know many of us. You're trying not to hurt anyone, but at the same time, yeah. trying to an- get answers and be true to yourself too. And it's so difficult to juggle all of that. Yeah, you put yourself in the back seat or in the farthest away role and go, I'll put all of them up front. She wants me to tell them, I'll tell them. They want to know they're still important. I'll tell them. I'll sit in the back and see what happens. And so that's how that went. So you're involved in a lot of adoptee groups. What made you seek out these groups in the first place? And what did you find there that helped you? I found them through Facebook, which was a brand new thing for me back in 2021. I originally had joined to look up some things that my wife said were important to my daughter. And I thought to look up adoptee groups. Didn't know what I would find because I'd never really talked to adopted people before, even though I'd grown up with some. And suddenly I was in this really big group of people and they were talking about all these things. And I was looking at it, reading all of this stuff and thinking, what's that? What's that? What's that? And within a very short amount of time, it led to me coming out of the fog kind of dramatically within weeks of being in this platform at all in the adopted community. And once I hit that point, I thought these connections I'm making, they were just really fledgling connections then I mean I had no idea who anyone was I had no idea who I was I uh, I decided to join a couple more and one of them was fireside adoptees where a friend invited me into that group and it was still a small group at the time about 30 35 people maybe mm. it had just started yeah in about a month of joining it. it was a whole different experience for me to to do this sort of thing I'm looking at you on a zoom screen. And that's what I was suddenly doing with adoptees. And I hadn't done that before. Yeah. And the exposure and the, the experience of talking and listening, I found was was something that, that was a really natural feel and fit for me. And I ended up facilitating in the group and then conducting interviews in the group, joining some other spaces and doing something similar. Yeah. And I found that one of the things I'm I have a real affinity for is making connections, reaching out to a lot of people and getting to know people. And that has often been the result of seeing people in the calls and saying, I want you to feel comfortable after the call. I contact them and reach out and see how they're doing. How mm-hmm. was it for you being in a call like this and experiencing this? Yeah. And leads to more depth of connection, mm-hmm. leads to other people starting to, to become familiar with who you are yeah. and feeling more comfortable with you. And then you go into one group, you see them in there as well. And yeah. pretty soon there's this kind of this sort of collegial thing. And I, I don't mean it like in the sense of like a club, but it you start to get comfortable with, with a, a number of people that you see all over the place. 
And it feels good because you know that you can depend on them for a certain level of support. Mm -hmm. You can be there for them for a certain level of support. And for me, that all started with with Facebook and, and getting into the Zoom calls on Fireside Adoptees. And eventually here was meeting people in person and joining Adoptees Connect out of Derry, New Hampshire up here and getting to know people even, even more closely in real life and seeing how important that sort of connection is and how indispensable that really is. And all of that together has meant the experience for me has been largely one of moderating, facilitating, and connecting people. Yeah. Because I like I like to listen to people. I like to allow them a chance to speak. Never thought I had anything deeply profound to say about being an adoptee. <laughs> but I, I feel like one thing I, I do know how to do, and I think it's because of my career and how I've been on Zoom for all these years before this happened, was I, I knew how to make people comfortable in, in situations like this where they had to talk. Yeah. Just to allow them a chance to be heard or seen. And so that that's really, I feel like the, the most I have to contribute at this point is just having people feel comfortable in, in a space and to a degree safe. Yeah. And I'm not saying spaces are safe because I know some of them are not safe. I know none of them can ever really 100% be, right. but you can have people more comfortable in some spaces than in others. And if I can do something to to allow that to happen, then I feel like I'm doing the right thing. So that's the importance for me of of connecting with people online. Were you surprised at the level of trauma that you saw coming into these groups or were you expecting that? No, did not expect, didn't know I had it either. I didn't either. Yeah, that was crazy. I found out within weeks. I, I remember when I joined the first group I was in and it was a big group, four or five, 6,000 people. So I would see these interactions. I remember trying to compose compose a post and sitting on it for about three days because I was so afraid somebody was going to come after me for it, right. revising it and rewriting it and taking <laughs> things out of it and toning it down and finally go, okay, I'm just going to put it up there. But it all had to do with the reactivity sometimes people have in spaces. And sometimes the civility isn't there, unfortunately. Yeah. And uh, and I know you know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> Most people have been through that, unfortunately, and it can make for a really uncomfortable experience for somebody who does want to connect. Yeah. And I did want to connect, but I thought, I can't say just anything. I have to really be conscientious of what I say. That turned out to serve me well because when I started working in the Adoption Trauma Network, I found I had to be very circumspect about what I would say mm. and what I would um, watch other people say. Because yeah. sometimes they, they will say things too. And if you're moderating or, or being an administrator in a certain role, you can't have people saying certain things to each other too, because they'll also activate each other or other members in the space. Yeah. So yeah. The, the trauma manifestation that I saw was completely a shock to me, but I started to understand that I was having it too. I didn't know that before. I mean, it was always there before, but I didn't know what it was until I was suddenly seeing it, mm -hmm. confronted by it. So no, I was not prepared at all for what it would look like inside spaces like that. Yeah. Is that kind of what, you know, made you so passionate about becoming leaders in a lot of these groups was seeing the pain and hurt and just wanting to help or like, what is your why behind getting so involved? So that's an interesting question because I've, I've never approached anyone about being a leader in a group. 
I've entered into the groups and I've had a, a natural fit with people in the group. And there have been times where I had to reach out to people who, who led certain segments of the group. And then they approached me about leading in the group. Mm. But with Fireside, it was just, I went in and I was in the Zoom calls and I was participating. And uh, Amanda Baum said, you did just something that I really would like for you to do in this space. I thought, I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> I didn't know I was doing anything. Yeah, right. I was, so I, I started to do that, but it wasn't, I never could have imagined that would happen. Yeah. In the Adoption Trauma Network. I went in to talk to, I, I joined, and I was talking to, to the admins about something. And we got conversation rolling over a number of weeks and months. And it was finally, I'd like for you to consider doing this in this space for us. And I had to sit on that for a long time. So I didn't know whether I was equipped to do that. Mm. And it takes a while to learn to do that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I still don't feel like I'm great at some of these roles. But, <laughs> I know, right? Uh, the involvement piece, I, I thought I was excited about it. The same thing happened with Adoptees Connect. I just went to join a group of people. And found out that the person I connected with who was running the group said, oh, I know you from Fireside. I'm looking to hand the group off. Would you like to run it? Wow. So again, it was just, just this thing that happened. And I'm, I'm very appreciative of any opportunities like that. Because I realize not everybody gets a chance to, to do that. Yeah. Especially across multiple things like that. I know that doesn't happen very often. Right. But I, I've never, never taken that for granted. I've never felt worthy of that. Mm. And sometimes, sometimes I get kind of shy about talking about that because I feel like, oh, you're going to, now you're going to tell them you do this too and this too. And it, it can feel kind of awkward sometimes. Mm -hmm. Like, why are you out there? I'm not trying to make a, a fuss in front of people at all. I just, yeah. for some reason, I, I've had these opportunities that I, again, like I said, I really appreciate them, but I don't always know how they come about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in your personal opinion, do you think it's possible to heal from the primal wound or that you can totally come out of the fog? Are we always in the fog a little bit? I think we're always in the fog a little bit. I do think, though, there is a point, like, like for me, where you're on the other side of it and you're not going to go back into it. Doesn't mean all of the vestiges of it are gone, but like for me, it's like, on one side of the line, then suddenly I was on the other and I knew I couldn't go backwards. Mm -hmm. Didn't mean everything was gone and cleared up for me though, but I thought it was, I thought, okay, this is all <laughs> laid out here. No, right. didn't mean I was resolved. It just meant I thought there's no more surprises. I know what's going on. And then another friend of mine helped me see that, no, you're going to keep having these revelations. You're out of the fog, but you're still in the fog. Yeah. Because you don't know fully what the, the reality was. So you're going to find yourself confronted with things that you're then having to make new discoveries and revelations are going to come to you about those things. And they did. So I feel like even though I, I definitely am out of the fog, I would say, mm -hmm. meaning there's some things that I would never go back to and can't go back to in my life for it doesn't exist anymore. I still am finding that I, I make these discoveries that I had no idea were going to be there. Yeah. I find having the podcast, like, you know, I'm like, oh, I had this great revelation I'm going to bring to everybody. And then karma's like, well, you didn't, you don't totally have it down. So here, let's, let's give you this too. And that, you know, it's like, I go through it again. And I, yeah, that's, what's frustrating for me is I'm like, I thought I was over this. I thought I was over this and here it is again. So frustrating sometimes. I find that in like facilitating Zoom calls and things like this, I'm, I'm listening intently because those moments come along all the time. 
and my eyes will get big and I'll think, wow, I hadn't thought of that. I hadn't mm-hmm. experienced that part of this before or come to that realization. Yeah. And so that's always happening. Right. In terms of the primal wound question, no, I don't think we heal from that. I think we can cope with mm-hmm. and adjust to some things and desensitize to parts of it. But because it's not just a somatic wound, it doesn't just go away with things people might find that that are helpful certainly should be done because i I mentioned this somatically your body experiences this right you can lessen Mm -hmm. the impact of that for sure what happens though is even when that has been addressed as well as it can be you're still confronted with the loss the reality of of the loss to of your of your identity of your heritage family yeah that isn't resolved by by your feelings getting better or your your body and your nervous system not reacting as much doesn't restore the things that, that you really lost that you need to grieve. Mm-hmm. And also we talk a lot about the pre-verbal aspect of this. The self didn't really exist before the trauma so that there's no healing back to a self before that because there wasn't any any such self. Yeah. So all you really, in my estimation, can do is say, this is always going to hurt to a degree and I'm always going to feel this loss. What can I build on top of this now that allows me to go forward, but be honest about the fact that at least for me, I'm always going to be aware of what I don't have and should have had. And I know we can talk about, well, but that life didn't really ever exist. Yeah. Yeah. You can talk about that, but in an existential way, the way it confronts you as a person, you do have to grapple with the fact that your identity is really contingent, meaning it could have been very much the case you ended up being somebody else. If you'd mm-hmm. gone home with another family, yeah, you'd be a different person. Right. For a kept person, that's not really a reality because there was no question they were going to go home with that family. For us, if somebody else had I hate to say this crudely, but signed up for a child, a line above our our parents, we would have gone somewhere else and become different people. So our our identity has always been a question mark. What are we going to turn out to be? So I think to say, oh, yeah, but those are things you can't really worry about. I think you need to confront those at some point, how how arbitrary your your identity formation really is as an adoptee, because it it just might have been the case, would have been the case that you could have ended up being adopted by people two doors down. Yeah. And you wouldn't be the same person you are now. Yeah. Did you ever growing up look around? Like I always would think, you know, when I was dating somebody, like I could be related to you and I don't know that, you know, that was always like in the back of my mind. Like what if I found out (laughs) you were related to me? (laughs) I remember thinking that as an adulthood, I didn't think about it so much growing up, but I remember in adulthood seeing this person at work this would have been like 19, 1997 or something. So way before I, 10 years before I found my family and thinking, I actually asked her, I said, is there any chance that I'm related to you? Oh, funny. Um, that wasn't any romantic thing or anything. It was just, mm-hmm. I saw this resemblance. And I thought, I, I, and I've never done that before. Ask somebody and no, it didn't, didn't turn out. We were as far as we know, but that's the only time I had experienced that, but I hear often about people talking about and the real reality about, especially depending on the proximity, the geographic proximity to where your birth family really was, that people could end up in that situation. Yeah. I know it does happen. Yeah, those are things people don't 
think about that we think about, you know? Yeah. With adoptees. Definitely so. Um, so in closing, if you could give any advice to adoptees that are struggling with adoption and coming out of the fog, what would that be? I think there's a lot of resources for sure. Community has been the, the resource for me. I know people have had varying degrees of success with the community because there are times when it's when it can be tough. Mm -hmm. Same thing with with therapy. I'm not an expert on therapy and I've gone in and out of it and I've found it helpful to varying degrees, but I'm yeah. I'm not somebody that can speak authoritatively on it, but I know it's helped a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So I would say that if you are going to do that, it's best if you can to find an adoptee trauma-informed therapist just adoption trauma-informed but if you can find an adoptee who's actually trauma-informed mm -hmm. then that's probably the best case there in that sense yeah the community again like i said can be very beneficial for people when when they don't have any sounding boards they haven't had any any way of talking about any of this and i think there's a generational thing here meaning if you think back and this is going to sound kind of strange dialogue like in the, this ancient greek sense of dialectic of talking back and forth with people was a way of figuring things out. Mm -hmm. Now we say, well, if it's online, you're not going to figure it out the right way because you can't read people fully and they won't be disclosing things to you. And it still can be the best vehicle you may have at your disposal. Not everybody's going to have the ability to go find a therapist yeah. or do something in person. So the, the groups can be very effective if you know how to approach them and, and navigate them and learn how to be cautious yourself about how you feel in those spaces. Yeah. So I would say to have the greatest support that you can coming from, from therapy, if that's if it works well for you and, and you're able to do that, because it can be a privilege to do that too. Like I said, not everybody unfortunately has access to that, but also the community can be great. If that's what you have at your disposal, then I would encourage people to avail themselves of that as well. And in-person groups like Adoptees Connect have been really helpful for me. So I would I would say those things are most helpful, along with, of course, all the memoirs that have come out, mm -hmm. all the great things that adoptees are saying and speaking about their stories yeah. and their perspective and the ones that are in the clinical and therapeutic spaces that are writing and giving presentations. I would definitely lean on them as well. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on today. I know it seems that the male adoptee population aren't as open to telling their stories, it seems like. So I totally appreciate you doing that today. Thank you. And I've noticed that as well. Yeah. <laughs> so thanks for coming on. Thank you so much, Melissa. Thanks, Greg, for coming on the show today and making such a huge difference in the adoptee community. I always find it interesting how similar but different all our stories are. So much in common, but in different ways. And if you are an adoptee listening today, wondering how you can help the cause, there are a lot of ways that you can do that. You can contact me at mindyourownkarma at gmail.com and come on the show and tell your story. Another way to make an impact is only going to take you one minute go on your listening platform and rate and review this podcast. When you do that, it helps the algorithms. It helps get the word out and it helps mind your own karma come up in searches in Google and such places. The third way is get involved, get in those groups on Facebook, connect with people in your area. As we adoptees join together, even with the constellation, our voices get louder. 
So those are just a few ways that you can make a difference. If you would like to know more about Mind Your Own Karma, you can go to my website, mindyourownkarma.com. There you will find a little bit more about me and what I'm trying to do with this podcast. Some exciting things coming up on the 29th of April. I am being joined by Danielle Gaudet, Healing Tree, and Loray Gerald, the Chameleon. They have both been on the show and we are doing an event bright where we will be talking about different healing modalities such as somatic mindful guided imagery, mind body practices, breath work, and more. We will be sampling some of these modalities and also have Q&A. So come join us. You can find the information on my Mind Your Own Karma Facebook page. Hope to see you there. As always, take what you need and leave what you don't. And always remember to mind your own karma. I'll see you next time.